Welcome to Sam Watches Star Trek, Monkey Off My Backlog's second weekly podcast, where one of us reacts to a TV show that the other has forced us to watch. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me is Sam. There are 178 episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation, which is only the second of... By the time this episode is released, possibly 20 different shows. I don't know what CBS is going to announce in the next few days. Of those 178 episodes, never fear, we are not watching them all because apparently some of them don't need to be watched for me to have a really good understanding of Star Trek. We are, however, watching 140 of them, which is my way of saying, I love you, Tessa. (laughs) Well, that's what's on the list so far. That list might get edited as we go along. But as Sam just mentioned, for those of you listeners who haven't been with us for a while or are just checking out this show now, this is a show where I share my childhood favorite Star Trek with my partner, Sam. And this week, we are starting the first season of Star Trek The Next Generation. Yay. I'm excited. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you. One of the reasons for that is we did not do this. We came up with the idea. Well, I came up with the idea of, because I forget everything, let's record for posterity, ours, mine and yours, what we thought about TV shows as we watched them. So we started doing that with Lost and then with Star Trek, but we did both of them mid-series. So... This is the first time we've started with a series from episode one doing this kind of thing, and it's fun. And I'm going to say one other thing, too, so we can, like, track it, right? So we can, we can, and and anybody who listens who is interested in in this, which will be none of you, (laughs) but we can start tracking it. So a thing that did not make it onto the recording that we did with Lazzie earlier about our love for James Vanderbeek is... I made a joke about how the mics and our audio are calibrated based on my voice. And in order for it to be calibrated to your voice, I have to get started on my my voice therapy. So it'll be interesting to see by the time we've gotten through this nearly 140 episodes, which are interspersed with Lost and whatever's after Lost, if this voice is indeed different. When we record the very last episode of Sam Watches Star Trek for Star Trek The Next Generation, we'll have to come back to this episode and listen to it side by side. Well, maybe you will. I mean, unless we're all dead by then. I mean, the water wars might be happening. It is 140 episodes. Yeah, it's a a long time. So that'll be, what, 70 episodes of Sam Watches (laughs) Star Trek? By the way, because Star Trek is such a utopian aspirant show i think it was not inappropriate to bring that up but it's also something that got left out of that episode and i'm really sad that it did because it was funny it it was you were very sarcastic at the time it was fun i was i think more sarcastic than i am being now you are known for your sarcasm whereas i am not the other day when i was introducing my classes to my students i always end every class session with being questions comments sarcastic remarks when you introduced your students to your classes that that's what i meant Although, that has given me an idea for next oh, spring. Oh, no. All right. That'll oh, no. be fun. It's called Flipping the Script, Flipping the Classroom. <laughs> oh, pedagogy. 
So before we get started talking about the episodes or episode that we watched this week, I do want to start by asking you, Sam, what has been your previous encounters with Star Trek The Next Generation and the characters that come from this series? What is your history with this show? What knowledge are you bringing into it? Star Trek The Next Generation aired during the entirety of my childhood. I was never, my interactions with it were were first contemporaneous. And because it was shown in syndication, attacks could come from any direction at any time when you turned on TV. And I say that because I always seem to see something that seemed very low production value. And it just seems like... And again, this is my childhood. Nobody introduced it to me. Nobody extolled the virtues of it, being a purely Star Wars person. Whenever I saw Star Trek The Next Generation as a child, I could not turn the channel fast enough because it just didn't look like anything I would have been interested in. And probably I wouldn't have been interested in it at the time. I'm trying to remember the the shows that I definitely watched in syndication. I remember seeing the John Wesley ship flash. I'm pretty certain in syndication. There was Phineas Fogg is around in the world, right? In 80 days. There was a syndicated version of that show. I had no idea that had been adapted into a television show. Yeah, I, that, that has not come up in my mind very often, but I, I remember Phineas Fogg. That's how I learned that name. But most of the, but I never watched Hercules or Xena or or those shows. So, you know, and my parents never watched any syndicated shows. So to me, that was also a marker of quality. There's a reason it's syndicated. You know, either it's a classic show that's living on forever, or it wasn't good enough to go on prime time. Which, okay, that's clearly not true, and and that model of television's been broken anyway. So there's that. I have a much fonder place in my heart for one of the characters because he was portrayed by the host of a show I did watch at that time in my youth, which is, of course, LeVar Burton's Reading Rainbow. So that might have been an enticement had I known it. I didn't. Wait, you didn't know that this was also LeVar Burton's show at the time? I I did not. Oh, okay. Again, could not change the channel fast enough. And I was spry when I was a child, so I could hop up and change the channel because we didn't have remotes. Thank you. Anyway. <laughs> was that your, your job? You were the channel changer? Well, we did not watch TV together. You were as the a, channel lackey? Well, we didn't watch TV together as a family. Hmm. I've told you my parents were early adopters, and we were the family that had TVs in every room. Well, and you were kind of a latchkey kid too, right? Yeah, Generation X. This yes. is the song of my people. Yeah. I'm all alone. Nobody's watching me do this thing. I was not a latchkey kid in any way whatsoever, but the defining thing that I hear from a lot of people who were latchkey kids is this idea of coming home and watching television by yourself. Right. And the television that I watched was on Nickelodeon. I remember very early on, you can't do that on television, which starred a certain future Canadian pop star of the 90s who told us about the things that we ought to know. There was also a show that aired around the same time called Out of Control, which starred the person we ought to know about. 
I almost always watched the reruns of Lassie and Dennis the Menace. That was about the time they started Double Dare. So those are the things that I watched. Later in life, you know I've watched a couple episodes of Next Generation for a course on science fiction and one on Utopia. So that was my formal, if you can call it that, introduction to Star Trek. The Next Generation, as well as the other shows too. Deep Space Nine and Voyager. And the original series for that matter. We also... You and I have watched First Contact together. We watched that for our science fiction class, I believe. Right. It's already all run together, and I couldn't remember why. So I think that would be, in fact, the sum total. There you go. Well, that I mean, is the answer you expect from me on Star Trek, comma, Sam Watches. you have watched a season and a half of Picard. Hey, Tessa, why is it only a season and a half? Because we both lost interest about halfway through the season. We will get back to Picard eventually, I think. Especially since season three is turning out to be a Next Generation reunion. Right. I am, I am much more interested. And we've watched all of Strange New Worlds. Which, by the way, I mean, that is the first quote-unquote new... I mean, if you think about Picard as a continuation of a character, right? I have seen... Of course, the the first iteration of Strange New Worlds and that that repurposed Star Trek original series pilot. But I think that's the first series I've really gotten in on the ground floor on, and I really enjoyed it. I did. I know it's different in some ways than quote-unquote classic Star Trek, and that is not a discourse I feel qualified nor am I interested in entering. But I am excited to watch Discovery. Very much. I feel like that's going to be my jam. I don't know. You know, I liked original series, original flavor. Fine. I mean, I recognize its place in pop culture history, and I think it does have a big one. I understand that Next Generation has maybe not as outsized a place, but I do think it's a big deal in pop culture generally, just understanding it as an outsider. I do, I think... The character Picard and, of course, his portrayer are very important in pop culture consciousness. But I don't know if I'm going to... I mean, you know, spoiler alert for the rest of the episode, it was fine. I wasn't not interested. But I do think that the (laughs) the next generation of shows, Discovery and Strange New Worlds, are going to be things that I like much better than perhaps this show overall, and I won't speak for the other three. Well, it's interesting that you say that because even though you didn't watch or were interested in Star Trek The Next Generation when it was in syndication, it's actually The Next Generation that made Star Trek more mainstream. A lot of the original series fans, which again became fans in syndication of the original series, They were definitely more of like a cult classic type following. It was the next generation that brought Star Trek into more mainstream science fiction, and it inspired people to go back and watch the original series. So, like, it's interesting that your family seems to be immune to that, because a lot of people definitely would say that they got their introduction to Star Trek through the next generation. The manager at the bookstore that I worked at during college 
before I transferred to that bookstore's operation in a different city, which was a much different story. But this was more or less a pleasant experience. But our manager, our store manager, in addition to being infamous for being a micromanager, he was also infamous for being the biggest Star Trek fan you knew. And he famously had two Christmas trees. And this doesn't bother me because my uncle has a Christmas tree, one of which is a traditional tree and the other is completely devoted to our mutual alma mater. However, Mark's second Christmas tree was a Star Trek tree. And indeed, in case you were wondering which flavor of Star Trek was his favorite, he liked to say two things at the end of meetings and when he came on comms. One was engage, and the second was make it so. Yes, of course, Picard's two catchphrases. Right. So, I mean, I probably couldn't have told you 20 plus years ago at this point that that was the captain he was emulating. I do now, though. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to compare this show to the original series, especially since I think this first season in a lot of ways struggles to find its identity with the original series, both in trying to emulate it too much and in trying to differentiate itself too much. So let me just go ahead and start with what we watched for this week. The Encounter at Farpoint, which is the first episode of the first season of Star Trek The Next Generation, It was originally aired as a two-hour TV movie, two hours with commercials, of course. It is actually around an hour and 30 minutes. It was subsequently split into two episodes in reruns. So that answers your question about whether this is one episode or two episodes. Right. It is one episode. Right. But they clearly meant after it premiered to be able to split it into two episodes. Right, and I will point out that that my TV app recognizes it as one episode. Paramount Plus, however, calls it episode one and two. Because the next episode, The Naked Now, is episode right. three. Yeah. On, on Paramount. And I'm not going to say that Paramount's ever wrong about anything. That's for other people <laughs> to say. Hi, Lozzie. How you doing? Can't wait to talk about the Hugos with you. <laughs> so this episode or episodes, depending on how you how you split it up, was written by DC Fontana, who, as we know, was a writer of episodes in the original series and by Gene Roddenberry. It was directed by Corey Allen, and it aired on September 28th, 1987, about a year after The Voyage Home came out. So quick summary. In the year 2364, almost 70 years after the events of the Undiscovered Country, the new flagship of the Federation, the USS Enterprise-D, with Captain Jean-Luc Picard, sets off on its maiden voyage. Intent on picking up the rest of the new crew and negotiating a treaty with the Bandy, the mysterious race who built the station, the Enterprise is halted en route by an omnipotent being that identifies himself as Q. Q claims that humans are a savage race who do not belong in space. Picard offers to undergo a trial to determine humanity's readiness to engage with other species. First of all, I do want to point out that I think it's very funny, and I never realized this until we started this project and we got to the Undiscovered Country, that this takes place 70 years after the Undiscovered Country. However, in the Undiscovered Country... 
Kirk says, oh, the Enterprise will have a new crew now and they're already assembled. It's, it's a very interesting way that the Undiscovered Country tries to like wink at the next generation, but it doesn't actually make sense from like a time period right. standpoint. Speaking of, of time periods, by the way, I just, since you brought up 1987, I just want you to know that, you know, the year that Star Trek came out was the year that we could walk like an Egyptian, open our hearts, live on a prayer, lean on me. We knew that nothing was going to stop us now because I knew you were waiting for me. Although hopefully not before I died in your arms tonight. <laughs> With or without you, you keep me hanging on alone by heart. It's fun to contextualize the pop culture, right? Because like, you know, we think about how old and how timeless of a song something like Living on a Prayer is. Well, that's the same year this episode came out. And... One of the things about this show is they do a better job than I thought of not looking dated. Some things look just hella dated. Yes, that is absolutely I mean, true. Star Trek The Next Generation is not as timeless as the Bon Jovi classic Living on a Prayer. And <laughs> no that's, one would argue that. But that's my point. Yeah. Is that, that, but it doesn't have to be. And I don't think it's really interested in that necessarily. I think that's one of the neat things, too. Whereas George Lucas has gotten caught up in trying to, or did get caught up, in trying to remove all timeliness, not timelessness, timeliness, out of Star Wars. You know, tried to erase the, oh, that's a model, I can tell. You know, tried to erase that with his special editions. I don't get the feeling that Star Trek has ever tried to be anything but what it is. And is proud of that, which much as I love Star Wars more than Star Trek, and it's not one or the other, but I do, George Lucas could have taken a lesson. I can probably count on one hand the number of TV pilots that I actually think are good episodes of television. Usually there's way too much exposition. There's usually a lot of like things that are going on. Their pilots are a specific genre designed to get picked up, right? By yeah. net used to be networks, now streaming, whatever. And so... It's just a very different genre than the rest of episodes of television. How do you think this works as a pilot? You know, it was funny. Uh, we talked about this after not the last episode we recorded, because that's the next episode that we did with Lazi. But two episodes back, we had a little discussion because I repeatedly said it was fine after the Errol Flynn movies. And, and that's the real answer. It was fine. I mean, there are plenty of things to talk about. But so the real answer is it was fine. And I'm going to yes and myself. And <laughs> I genuinely look forward to spending time with most of these characters, especially the ones not named Wesley. <laughs> yeah, we're definitely going to talk about Wesley and Oh Wheaton my God. Here in a moment. Already, like right out of the gate, first episode, annoying as hell. I'm with Picard on this one. <laughs> Well, you know what? Let's go ahead and talk about these characters. So uh, first up, the first voice we hear, the first person we see on the bridge is Jean-Luc Picard, played by Sir Patrick Stewart. He has hair. He does have he a little hair, hair you guys. in this episode. I know that this is the character you're probably most familiar with from this right. particular series, just because of pop culture and the fact that you've seen him play this character in the television show Picard. What did you think about this introduction? The was, first time okay. that most people saw this I have character. a real question. This is yes. a real question. 
was the plan, you know, the like the irony of it, was the plan for the android to have more emotions than the human captain? <laughs> because Maybe. It, well, no. I mean, because, I mean, of course, I've seen episodes of Next Generation from later in the run. I've seen the, the one movie, and I've seen, as you said, a season and a half of Picard. So this introduction seemed weird. He definitely... It it feels like they told him to play it emotionless. Like somebody who doesn't who is not ruled by or cannot access emotions. And I mean, you know, the thing going back to Wesley again, it, the thing about not liking children comes up in the pilot. And it's like they gave him a set of notes and realized at some point, I don't know how quickly that this won't work. And it's almost like the character of Data is there as a juxtaposition because it's like, how far could we go in the emotional spectrum? Can we go farther than Vulcans? We could do androids. <laughs> wouldn't it be ironic if the android had more feelings than the human? There, Okay, so there's a theme that we've talked about before in Star Trek, the original series, which is this idea of professionalism in Starfleet. And, like, what is the captain's role to his crew? Like, can he be friends with his crew? Can he have personal relationship with his crew? Like, where's the line yeah. with the captain and his relationships? It almost feels like they are trying to reintroduce that concept with Picard. And you have to remember, this the is... The polar opposite of Kirk. Right. This is his, you know, this is his first encounters with a lot of these characters. Right. This is a new ship, new crew. Like, And so I wonder if they're trying to establish himself like as a captain who's not Kirk and who has professionalism and doesn't ultimately know these people very well. Right. And obviously I haven't encountered, you know, three of the, the other three big time captains. I know a little bit about Janeway and I've seen Cisco before. I don't really know anything about Bacula's captain. This isn't quantum leap. (laughs) I know a lot about Sam from quantum leap, but yeah, he is playing essentially the polar opposite of Kirk. But I also think about him in relation to Pike's Peak, right? (laughs) That is what we call him all the time now. But but you think about the way that they, and of course this is much farther removed and with much more lore. I mean, they are recapturing a character, but they are pretty much able to paint him with any strokes that they want. And so with the benefit of what, six major captains, because there's also discovery at six or seven. I, kind of know where that goes but i'm not sure but pike is much more personable yes he at is, least in this he is not pilot the, episode yes he is not the lecherous kirk he is not the automaton emotionless picard at least as he's portrayed in this first episode but he's meeting new crew you think about his first interactions with uhura with with the other new folks on that show and he's he's a much he's professional but that doesn't mean that he's cold. He's also like cooking for people by the second episode. Which really has to be one of the best parts. I wanted to talk about some of these things a little bit, so I'm glad to drop them in as asides. I think one of the nice things about Star Trek, by the way, that Star Wars fails to do, because they can't get out of telling the one story about the one who may be <laughs> the father or son. Who knows? I don't know. But you have this wealth of characters to be able to compare to each other, right? 
So even if Pike came many, many years later, or not, <laughs> right? Because we saw him in original series. It's, it's a good thing to be able to compare them to each other, regardless of the order that you watch them in. I think there's definitely a benefit to people who did have the opportunity to watch them in order during the time that they're in. But I mean, at this point, because this is a slow watch, it's interesting to see this show play out over time while we're watching other shows, you right. know, in the meantime, whether that be Picard or Strange New Worlds or Discovery, Lower Decks or you know, the eight others that will exist by the time we're done with this. <laughs> by the time we're done with this episode. And I and I think that's a good thing, by the way. I think yeah. I think what ironically, I think what Paramount is doing with Star Trek is what I think Star Wars and to an extent Marvel should be doing. So the two people that are on the bridge at the beginning of this episode that Picard seems to know the most or has worked with before or at least has some familiarity with are Deanna Troy and Data, the the android. Which one do you want to talk about first? Well, I mean, I've already brought up Data. So, and I mean... Played by Brent Spiner. Yes, who has played his creator? The son of his creator. The son of his creator in Picard because who remembers what happened at the end of the first season <laughs> things happen man and then we didn't talk about them in the second season which became a completely different show by the middle of the second season it was like star trek 4 next generation edition with some new characters we don't really care about except i do so i mean i knew a little bit about this i know because you cannot resist because you're tessa i know about his cat <laughs> spot Right, I and have I, no idea when that cat shows up. Yeah, and and having seen some episodes down the line, I do know that he is very stilted. You know, in in the pilot, as he, you know, and they're probably all a little bit more stilted than they will be, but I do know that his character arc, and he mentions it. There's a little, there's a little sci-fi classic trope of data dumping. But in this case, it is data dumping done by Data, <laughs> where he basically says, I'm an android, and I don't act like a human, but I'd like to. That is my my goal, is to become as human as possible. Yeah, this seems very... It's reverse Spock. Yeah, I was going to say, this is very different from the Spock that we see... Reverse Spock. At the beginning of Spock's arc, where he's trying desperately to ignore his human half, to become more Vulcan... Data is the opposite where he doesn't experience emotion, but he desperately wants to. What did you think about that scene between him and Riker in the holodeck where he talks about this? It was eclipsed by Wesley being an idiot. <laughs> I, no, I, that's what I'm talking about. I think that was interesting. And I said to you something along the lines of this is a relationship that's interesting. My exact words were, is this a best friendship? It's a best friend show. Yeah, I, I think that Data as a character is interesting. I think he is more fully realized in this pilot episode as what he is than perhaps some of the other characters are. Yeah, I mean, you compare that to, to Deanna Troy. Right. You're going to have to sell me on this character because... But not on her hair. Well, I mean, it was 1987, <laughs> and we were embracing that at the time. 
I mean, you got to remember, you, you you know, it's really important that sometimes in history when bad choices are made, you just have to remember that that was the time period and people were different people back then and you cannot hold, you cannot expect to hold people to account for choices that were made in a different time and that hair is an example. So Troy is an empath. Yes, she is a betazoid. Right. She's half Betazoid, half human. She does not have the telepathy of the Betazoids, but she does have the empathic power. And so every creative decision that is made can be met with the following question. Why does this need to happen? What purpose does it serve? You know, and I like to think that in the best of possible worlds, that is the least obnoxious note a writer or a creator or a showrunner can get. That question was not answered. I think most of the cast, I can tell you why they were there. I can imagine that Troy's existence is there as another counterpoint to Picard, much like Data is, much like I think Riker probably is, but I don't know. I don't know Star Wars, at least the the expanded Champions League universe, whatever it's called now, has an empath. And spoiler alert, if you're not familiar with the original Zahn trilogy, she's the bad guy, or at least one of the bad guys. Empaths aren't good, generally, because empaths in real life, well, most empaths in real life aren't empaths they're just assholes Uh, most people who say that they are empaths are not in fact empaths. right because because here's the thing being an empath is terrible it is like the worst and that's one of the things that timothy zahn got right i don't know about this i don't know that is a very long way to say oh i don't know about her well i can tell you for sure why she's in this pilot and why she's wearing a mini dress when nobody else is. I mean, the character is supposed to be the sex appeal of the show, at least right. at this point in the pilot. Right. I mean, I, I, I love Deanna Troy as a character. You mean, but you, I, mean, you mean the bossy, the bossy woman tiger mom is not the sex? <laughs> I don't. Well, I just I just agree to disagree on that one. I love Deanna Troy as a character, but that is very clearly what her role was at the beginning of this. That and to look. distressed every time she senses something bad happening. So yeah, I mean, pass. The only other thing I'll say about her is I do find it interesting that she already has the title of counselor, which is not a title we've heard in Starfleet before. And I like that the title counselor can go two ways. It can either mean that she's a diplomatic advisor, or it can mean that she is a therapist. And so it's interesting to see her juggle. We don't get a distinction between the two in this episode, but it's interesting to see that that is kind of the role that this character is inhabiting. The other three characters that we see on the bridge at the beginning of this episode are the security officer, Tasha Yar, played by Denise Crosby, Worf, played by Michael Dorn, and a minor appearance by the actor Cole Meany. He's just referred to as the con in this episode by Picard, but we will later, of course, know him as Miles O'Brien. He develops into... A major character later. I had no idea he was in the pilot episode, so that was a fun surprise for me. 
What did you think about these other bridge characters that we see very early on? So Tasha Yar, Worf. I'm not going to actually ask you about Miles O'Brien because he has such a little role that there's well, no but point. But I want to tell you about Miles O'Brien. Oh, okay. O'Brien. All right. I mean, I really have nothing to say about the character himself, but I mean, I'm just, I'm just looking. And of course, I've seen him on his other show, but I mean, this is somebody who's been in so many movies. I mean, he... He's he's even I mean you know you've made it when you've had a guest star appearance on the Simpsons which he has. But I mean this is somebody that I've seen in a lot of TV shows. He's in Layer Cake. He has a small part there. He's in Con Air. I mean he has so many television uh, credits too. I, I know. Too. Like yeah, he he's been with the captain from that other franchise. MacGyver with Richard Dean Anderson. Right. Right. He was in The Commitments and and that was kind of a big movie. Uh, just this is somebody I recognize. I know who this person is just because I've seen him so many times in different pop culture. So, I mean, it's it's fun to see a familiar face. I I think it's interesting that they show us Worf in the pilot and it's like, oh, look, a Klingon. <laughs> or Klingon, as they're more commonly called outside of the original series, is on the bridge. That's different. This is a two-part pilot, but we have no time to go into that. Okay. Well, I think part of it was to emphasize the ways in which this is now normal. That, that right. they have... But that's the thing. It wasn't... No, like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the thing, right? Because a pilot's where you're supposed to lay out the premises of a show. And this is a premise they don't lay out. It just isn't there. Yeah, the closest we really the, get... Isn't the last time we saw a Klingon in Search for Spock? No, Undiscovered Country. Remember, they Which tried... Which hasn't come out yet. Oh, that's right. Okay. Yeah. There were no Klingons they in the whale really... movie. So the last one we saw was the one who was super hella mad in Search for Spock. That's right. I, I hadn't actually thought about this because I think about it in terms of the chronological timeline of the right. series. But you're right. We haven't gotten to the point where the Klingon Empire has made pretty much a permanent treaty with right. the Federation. And I mean, obviously, I knew that. Right. But I kind of feel like it was, I think it was a party foul that we info dumped that and that's just it. Plus, it was just terrible. Terrible makeup. Yes. Uh, Worf's makeup does get better. The prosthetics get a lot better as well, the show goes on. I've also seen him on his other show. Right. And so I know that's part of why it stood <laughs> out so poorly. But like that wig, though, that was. I think that was problematic. I mean, I think that it's interesting that there was a story big enough to tell over a double episode pilot. But somehow there wasn't enough time to do this. And and that's to me, that's kind of problematic. The only hints we really get into Worf as a character are his sash. I know that there are people in the Star Trek community who are screaming at me right now because you know the name of the sash. I don't, but it's like the chainmail thing that he wears over his uniform, which is really the first time we've seen in Star Trek someone's cultural values come out in the uniform. Like, because Starfleet uniforms are like uniforms, they're supposed to make you look like everybody else. Because, because Starfleet is largely white people and they have no culture of their own. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Quite possibly. But this idea that not only is he a Klingon 
on the bridge, but that he gets to nod towards his culture a little bit in this in this way. The only other instance we get any insight into Worf is during the scene where Picard tells him to stay with the saucer section and not go with them to the battle bridge. And he says, I'm a Klingon. Like it's against like my nature to run away. Only afford your makeup for this many scenes, dude, (laughs) come on. And so the third character is the security officer. Tasha Yar played by Denise Crosby. It took me, it took me until a couple of minutes ago to remember who you were talking about because I do not (laughs) know her name. She's just the security, the security woman with the short hair. Right. Who is not, the sex interest. Apparently. No, definitely not. Because <laughs> she has short hair. And so I know this. I'm not saying I believe that. And since she's a security officer, she acts in a way that's like, at the time right. would have been classified as butch. I, I love how uh, Seth MacFarlane carried through the tradition of the the woman security officer in the Orville. Yeah, I hadn't like, really thought about that, but that's absolutely true. Well, right. I mean, it's it's like one of the easiest ways to go against a gender stereotype, right? I mean, like, we got Miss Feminine Hair Feelings 1987 down here, <laughs> and up here we have Miss Butch Haircut, Girl in Charge Will Beat You Up 1987. Those are, we just do those two. Oh, wait, we do a third one. It's mom. Right. Oh, wait. You always have to have a mom. But, like, we are doing the three women you can possibly be in 1987 <laughs> in this show. Yes. And that is all I have to say about Tasha Yar. Yes. One of the clever things I think that this pilot does is because the the cast of The Next Generation is so large, it is a large ensemble of characters, much larger than the original series, they do a very good job of making it plausible that we would meet the first half of the crew during the first half of the pilot and then the second half of the crew in the second half. And that gives us more time to spend with each of these characters. What did you think about that particular structure? I agree with you. I think that's very interesting. And I know, of course, that you're really talking about... And and so, yes, I am ready to talk about, like New York, the <laughs> Enterprise is really a character, a very important character, nay, perhaps the most important character. So, of course, I was really glad to be introduced to something that I know will be very important throughout the rest of the series, which is, of course, the Battle Bridge. (laughs) The Battle Bridge may have been my favorite character, quote-unquote character, in this episode. And yes, if you can hear sarcasm, good for you. Yeah, it is really funny to me. I had forgotten about the Battle Bridge. The last time I saw this episode was like probably over 10 years ago. Yeah, that, that was a bad call, and it does not make it... I think the rest of the- I, you know, I think it's a good idea, though. Like, I think, and I told you at the time, I said, what I think we're doing is basically positioning this show to have a political aspect, you know, which, which can be like the, the main thrust of Starfleet, right? The negotiations, the first contacts, the, the interventions when necessary. And those can happen primarily on the main bridge. You know, this is a much bigger enterprise. So we have these domestic and personal stories that can play out in these other parts of the ship that we've never seen before, including the um, the Star Trek Danger Room. And um, 
but then like the battle bridge is the the place where that action happens and i really think what was try what they were trying to do here is say that that is a separate thing we are not like the original series going to do this every time i like that i do i i think this was a good idea okay are you sad that the battle bridge only exists for this episode no <laughs> i can dunk on them for a good long time I will be talking about the Battle Bridge throughout the entire run of this, if not for every Star Trek we watched since then. But it was a good idea, though, by the way. And this brings up an interesting point. We should take a break from the characters to talk about the Enterprise for a minute. This is the first time that we see the Enterprise, Enterprise D, as a galaxy-sized starship. This is supposed to be the flagship of the fleet. Big boy Enterprise! It is not the Enterprise of the original series, which was more of an exploration. This isn't your grandpappy's Enterprise. That had more of like an exploration like first contact type of vibe to it. The whole point was that children didn't weren't on the Enterprise. Cannot put a child in a sports car. So we got a minivan Enterprise, you guys. Pretty much. And we get to see a little of that in this episode. We get to see that there are children on on the Enterprise, that the whole families live together on the Enterprise. And, you know, all of the stuff that you could possibly need, it's more of a city than it is a ship. Yeah, this is basically like, like the minivan, like the Astro or the Aerostar. You know, this is, this is your family-friendly I had an Astro. Vehicle. Growing up. I mean, most people did. I mean, <laughs> we didn't, but my best friend did. The car I learned to drive on. It is the car I remember fondly driving through town in the mid-90s listening to Beck's Loser. And and I guess the rest of Mellow Gold, <laughs> That too. seems appropriate. Yeah, that's what Sean had in high school. So we, we definitely drove around in a van. I think it's great because, as I said, the potential for a larger storytelling set is there. And if they had tried to do the next generation as legit Star Trek, the next generation without changing, in some ways changing the paradigm of Star Trek, it wouldn't have worked. I think that from what I understand, from an outsider's approach to Star Trek, the next generation is the paradigm that is followed for the next two series as well. But I think this is really trying to set up a new paradigm of Star Trek storytelling that carries on for a while. I think that, from what I know, that Enterprise is not looked fondly on for by some people because it breaks that paradigm. But I think that's also the reason why some people really like it. And then I think Discovery is the next... You know, Discovery is like the next generation, next generation, where it, it, it flips the script. <laughs> so I mean no I, I think this is all great I think it's fine I don't think it would have worked had they not taken some big swings and they did for this so good for them it's fine <laughs> <laughs> the other thing that's interesting about this show is that in the original series there is a lot of technology concepts that have become iconic right because of the the original series like the transporters the Little, little flip communicators that a lot of people say inspired the modern cell phone. There are a lot of things like that 
from the original series that we think of, right? Beam Me Up Scotty is the iconic line that people talk about from that series, and it is directly referencing the transporter technology. The Next Generation also introduces an iconic piece of Star Trek technology, which is the holodeck. A lot of people, when they talk about their childhood watching The Next Generation, reference the holodeck as something that really gave them a sense of imagination about virtual reality and its possibilities. And every time, almost every time I see a virtual reality in science fiction, now someone makes a Star Trek reference to the holodeck. It is one of the things that I think of a lot when I think of Star Trek, even though it didn't exist in the original series. So, Tessa, would you... Would you say that you are, in fact, a holodeck girl? Uh, this shit is bananas. bananas. B-A-N-A-N-A-S. <laughs> uh, you know, I had to do that. Speaking of bananas, no more food cubes. No more food cubes. Hooray. I enjoy the holodeck. Having seen the Orville, the first two seasons of the Orville, I'm pretty familiar with the with the benefits and Perils and pitfalls. Although speaking of pitfalls, <laughs> we do get to see Wesley. You had one eat job, dude. Don't be an idiot. In the stream, after watching, <laughs> after watching Riker deftly maneuver the stream. But we, I mean, it gives us a chance to see Data's strength, though, because he pulls him out of the river and holds right. him above his head. Right. I mean, I mean, it's. I mean, but it's like the battle bridge, right? It's like the saucer. It it's let let us show you how this ship is different, and I think this is about as good a decision as the other two. I guess they blew all their money on this one, so they couldn't keep the battle bridge. They're like, well, <laughs> well, but I I liked it. I mean, I thought it was interesting. It it mostly serves the role of exposition, other than you know, look, this exists. But in this episode, it's. It's done as you as you know to get a little bit more characterization about data, including his strength, to see that Riker interaction, to get a better idea of what kind of character he is, and then to see Wesley eat it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad you brought up the saucer because this marks the first appearance of the maneuver that will become known as the saucer separation. That's only done in emergencies. We did see this in Star Trek Beyond, but that's right. obviously a movie that came out much, much later. Right. And and previously, the, the saucer separation is known as the thing that happened during the time where American colonists were like, what the hell? We don't need a damn dish underneath our cup, man. Like, that is... what like. All right, that's it's because you have people to pay to clean them, and you want to make sure they have plenty to do. But we don't believe in that. Never we do, Except, sort of. Well, this is the North. I'm imitating the North uh, here. I see. So, but <laughs> we have no problems, no social issues here in America. But we don't believe in a saucer because who has time to wash another dish? Damn it! <laughs> and so what this is doing is it's recodifying what the saucer separation. <laughs> There was no part of that that was okay. <laughs> this is also the only time where the saucer reconnection sequence appears on screen. That is what happens when somebody <laughs> goes to they visit their family. <laughs> it's what friend of the podcast and, and fellow Star Trek recapper Elise does when she goes to visit her sister. <laughs> <laughs> 
Does yeah. that make up for the earlier one? Yes. Okay. It does. What better way to celebrate a two-part episode of Star Trek The Next Generation than by having our own two-part episode? That's right. We've gone from talking about four episodes of television in one episode to two television episodes in one episode, and now we've talked about half of an episode. (laughs) We did it! And so until next week, when we finish our discussion of Encounter at Farpoint... You can find Sam on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris nine. And you can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. Until next time, live long and prosper.